City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Limits. I'll move the microphone cleverly as the red light comes on. And um, this is City Limits. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month and we're going to have a chat today to uh, Dr. Paddy Moriarty out at Monash again. We had him on a couple of weeks ago on Radiothon, and we'll get an update on Radiothon. <laughs> that bloody word. Um, you're junior over there. You're, you're looking. You're not concentrating. What are you doing there? You're pressing buttons and. Yeah, I'm concentrating, Kevin. It's a donation. You're giving a donation, aren't you? Oh, it's, that's oh, yeah, oh sorry, Israel. Sorry. sorry, it's Israel for yeah. Oh, okay, fair enough. Go ahead. You're giving giving to Israel's campaign. That's good to know. Uh, <laughs> I think what Kevin's trying to say, everyone, is that it's not too do- late to donate to Radiothon. No, well, I was saying that, but in fact, you know, Israel's got all the Christians donating to his. Uh, he, he's lost his four million a year job. He's got all sorts of sponsorships on top of that, but he's now asking people to donate to his legal costs. This is the rugby player who got sacked because he said that atheists, gays, and uh, all sorts of sinners, um, alcoholics, etc., will all go to hell unless they right. repent. Right. He's a he's a great thinker. Okay, um, so don't donate to him, everyone. No, donate no, to us instead. The eternal <laughs> fires of hell. Did you just give him? Oh, was I thought you were giving to him. That's fair enough. Um, the old Israel. It is the fourth. When yeah, Paddy Moriarty's going to come on. Yeah. It's all chaotic this morning. Kevin hasn't even made a cup of tea. What's going no, on? No, I have. I have. Oh, you have? But oh. no, well, that's chaotic as well. Okay, let's start the chaotic. I'm Kevin Healy. You're Eugenia Zubchenko. And um, and no, I'll tell you what. I I got halfway got got halfway here and thought, hang on. I took out the tea to put some more in, and I forgot to put it back in my bag. Oh, no. But then I got here and there's a little bit of white tea in another bag in my bag. So we've got a mixture of white tea and ordinary tea bag today, which oh. could be could be interesting <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so Breakfast let's try cocktail. it. That's right. Oh, it looks good. It smells good. Sounds right. <laughs> See, there we go. <laughs> it's so, all about the sound effect really, isn't so it? So everything's chaotic. And chaotic is we, we in fact um, had, well, we, we've had a number of guests planned and they've all either not got back to us or been unavailable. Um, one one of whom is uh, Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. Oh, now, Dave. Uh, yes, because he, but he couldn't come on today. But he's coming on in two weeks' time on our Energy Day because there's a couple of items floating around, or two or three items floating around. Uh, one is on uranium. One is that the um, Australian super has actually called for nuclear power to be introduced in Australia, which mm. um, you know, coming from a so-called union organ, union-based at least organisation is a bit strange. We'll get Dave to comment on that. There's also an, another accident um, yesterday at the Lucas Heights... Um, thanks. The Lucas Heights um, um, uranium um, place in Sydney, the, mm. the, you know, which is supposed to be low-key, etc. but that's facility. where they storage it and also mm. do some work for, for medical reasons. But yeah, um, two more workers were exposed to dangerous levels of radiation there. We'll get Dave to comment on that. Yeah, really, yeah. And there's a few other things happening in that area, so we'll have a yarn to him in two weeks' time. But anyway, whatever all the guests we after, and you were after a, a woman in Sandringham um, mm. who never got back to us either, because that's a, that's a good story. It's mm. a, a, a property at, I think it's 109 Abbott Street, Sandringham, where a developer was planning a massive overdevelopment. There, are, there were um, a large number, I haven't got it in front of me, I don't think, but a large number 
of um, objectors and um, sorry, it was 109 Abbott Street. And I think there were also 109. Oh no, maybe whatever. There were there were lots of objectors and. Last week at VCAT, and it's a rarity, um, VCAT ruled against the developer and yeah. threw it out. Um, so the, the local community had quite a, quite a uh, victory. We hope to talk to one of the people involved today, but unfortunately, again, didn't get back to it. So we had one of those times, yeah, haven't we? in the coming weeks. But Paddy's going to talk to us about a number of things, including uh, coal, um, transport in Melbourne, the, the push to get more roads because of congestion. I mean, you get congestion because there's so many cars on the roads because they're overcrowded so you mm. build more roads for more congestion and mm. gee, it's a great idea um, and um, he's going to also I want to talk to him about glyphosate which is the um, ingredient in Roundup that's been found because there's an interesting story here that, um, that in fact the big companies who are involved in its production or use uh, funded a massive campaign to have, uh, uh, to have plans for it to be banned, not banned so we'll... Um, We'll come to that, but that's an interesting little so story. They wanted yeah. to can the ban. Mm. What was this put white? Put the tea ban in the can and put the glyphosate in the can. That's it. That's it. And <laughs> and of course, in America, so, there's been massive, um, massive compensation cases, millions and millions of yeah. dollars people have been getting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting case. Yeah. Yeah. Paddy is really all over a lot of interesting issues, isn't he? He is, isn't he? Well, <laughs> I just what's mentioned. His, what's his particular field? He's an engineer. He, he's, right. he's technically an engeer. Yeah. <laughs> but he just does whatever he wants to. <laughs> that's right. He just, that's right. Well, he's, he's my age. He should have retired years ago, but he, he loves sitting there researching and writing papers. And he has a nice time. Yeah, good. I, I think I've told you before, he actually, that the department he's in moved to a different campus, but he refused to move. So he's sitting in this office in a different department right. doing his work. He just sat there and they just let him sit there. Well, most of his papers are written with other people, but anyway, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I just found one interesting story yesterday. I think it was the Herald Sun. This piece felt this ma- glossy magazine, little magazine thing fell out, and it was a promotion for private schools with lots of private schools advertising, including, dare I say, at my old school. Um, but, but. Um, just to show the difference between struggling state schools and the fact that all this money now goes. And um, because of my experience at a private school, I became totally opposed to any state aid for private schools, by the way. Uh, but Really? You went to well, a private school? I would have never Well, guessed. because, um, well, we were, we were actually, in my opinion, in matriculation year, which was the, you know, the final year at that time, it was called matriculation. Um, is this back in the Pleistocene? That's right, that's the days. Mm. Um, in that year, we had a full-time worker from the National Civic Council, which was the Santa Maria Anti-Communist Group. <laughs> An ex-school captain lecture us every Friday morning in the in, in the subject in um, what was called Christian doctrine, wow. and they just indoctrinated us about anti-communism, etc. I just saw it as brainwashing of dear little children, mm. which the which that which they used to complain the communists did, um, and um, I became a an ardent opponent of state aid for schools, and I don't I still oppose it. I don't think I think I think if they want to run their own schools, good luck to them. But the state provides the system and. If they want to provide their own, they can, but they have to pay for it, in my opinion. Mm. That's my argument. Yeah, that's a very reasonable position. Yes, but uh, Turak College in its Mount Eliza campus, you'll be pleased to know that uh, this is something kids say in um, in working-class suburbs and state schools probably don't get. They've actually got a farm and equestrian programs with kids with horses, and the you know, kids have to own their own horse, of course, but in that school you've 
people say, I want a horse, they'll parents will buy it for you at Turak <laughs> College. Um, they have all these, they're right, training for equestrian events of all sorts and farming, etc. And that's a campus for a private school uh, which gets huge amounts of money from the state purse. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I think farming is actually a pretty good thing to teach well, children. Well, I'm sure it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. get in touch with the earth, think about the yeah. environment, but maybe riding the horses, not so, but how, <laughs> not so important. Well, well, how many, but how many kids can, get, can do that other than at a oh, college like Turak College, yeah, unfortunately? Mmm. Imagine There's something a like that in the western suburbs where kids don't really have very much contact with nature at all. No, no, and if they do, that's, they go down and they're told to keep away from Stony Creek at the moment because yeah. it's too bloody poisoned. Don't touch the yeah, just in, in relation to the way that we cover stories, um, we've mentioned this many times, but if, if certain events happened in, say, the United States or England or Australia or New Zealand... Um, or some other Anglo-Saxon country, or even France or Germany, or a country that's still considered to be to white and etc. Um, Caucasian. Um, we would get page after page of, of the tragedy, etc., etc. But this week, um, just the way that the Herald Sun has covered stories on the world page on Friday. Um, migrants found adrift in the Mediterranean Sea and rescued by a passenger ferry say 22 people who set off with them from Morocco died and were thrown into the water. The ferry travelling from the Spanish enclave of Melilla on the African north coast to Matria in Spain intercepted the boat in the Elberon Sea. According to El Pay, 27 people were on board with 49 set off from Morocco. Morocco was emerged as a gateway for Africans, etc. Three paragraphs covering mm. a story in which 22 people died in the Mediterranean Sea but they weren't, if they'd been Spanish, they might have got more coverage, but mm. they weren't. And then we got a story, um, again, in three paragraphs, a little in brief, Cambodian rescuers combing through a rubble, the rubble of a collapsed seven-storey building have recovered the bodies of 15 construction workers and pulled out 24 injured. The Ministry of Labour and Vocational Training said that 30 workers were at the site when the building collapsed, but resident Noor Chandian said there were about 55 to 60 people inside the building in the coastal city of Sihanoukville. Yan Min, the governor of Priya Sihanouk province, said the building was owned by a Chinese investor. Now, that's the entire story. Imagine if 22 people died in a building collapse. Well, we've seen it here when it's happened, the cladding mm. situation, etc. Mm. Um, and again, that same story, but yesterday there's a slight... Just a, a follow-up again in, in this time, again in three paragraphs. Three paragraphs seems to be the go for these stories. Rescuers yesterday continued to search rubble of the building that collapsed while under construction in a Cambodian beach town, killing at least 24 workers as they slept in the unfinished condominium that doubled as their accommodation. So it's like the situation in Bangladesh where the workers are forced mm. to live on the property and, and can't get out when anything happens. Mm. The seven-storey building collapsed early Saturday on top of the dozens of construction workers who slept each night on the second floor. The condominium was being built in the seaside, which just repeats that bit, which is several, etc. Um, but again, um, you know, in that story also, the fact that the workers are forced to, to live on the site and, mm. get probably, and you imagine that their yeah. working conditions would be like. I don't know if they're forced mm. to live there, Kevin, but, but I think it's more that they've kind of come from other places to work on the project well, and often whatever, they can't yeah, afford they're... to... Rent, no, any any other massive wages they're getting for that job. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's incredibly tragic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll, I'll mention the. Um, I mentioned last week about um, the Corkman site, that pub that the blokes tore down in yeah. Carlton, and how the government was likely to, you know, uh, get, 
to allow them to actually develop a part of it and they'd well, still make money out of it. That, that, wasn't mm. there talk that the government was going to make them rebuild or the Heritage Trust or something wanted them to rebuild it? That's right. That was the original, yeah, but now it's yeah. you know, put a bit of a garden there. You can develop the rest. Well, it's mm. come out now that while they've been paying, they've been fined a few things, etc. Um, this is the typical Herald Sun um, thing, of course. Call to block rogues. I mean, rogues is an emotive term, but there you are. Pub cowboys under fire. But, but it's interesting. The rogue developers who illegally demolished the historic Corkman pub have built at least two apartment complexes with flammable cladding. But despite copping fines of etc., um, with Mr Shakiri, one of them suspended as a builder and demolisher only because he failed to pay his registration fees. The loophole has prompted calls for an urgent inquiry into Victoria's building laws. The opposition carries on as you'd expect them to, but the, uh, they built a 200-apartment development in Ligon Street, Brunswick East, assessed as a moderate risk because of the use of flammable cladding. Mm. It was developed by Max Shag with company records showing Mr Shakiri and Mr Kutlovsky are directors. The same company is behind another apartment block in Hawthorne, etc., etc., but it is that they're, they're still going on developing. I mean, they should be... That's right. Yeah, should be stopped. Yeah, license should be revoked. That's incredible. Yes. Yeah. So that's. They, I mean, the the whole story over the Corkman right was that it it caught fire accidentally one night when no one was looking and. No, they demolished. Just demolished it. Oh, d- really? Yeah, they just, oh, just moved in and demolished it overnight. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Without a without a permit. That's right. And it yeah. was a you know historic and heritage building, etc. Yeah. yeah. And it was it was actually a fine building that one. I used yeah, to it was beautiful. Like yeah, it was a very cosy pub. Yeah, that's yeah, right. I used to go that's down right. my university days. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes, all around there. <laughs> now, um, what time is it? Nine nineteen. We'll have a do a couple of these. We, there's a bit of industrial stuff floating around. I find interesting at the moment. Mm. Um, headline in um, yesterday's Financial Review: Business urges new work rules. Employers are calling for the Morrison government to prioritise fixing the enterprise bargaining system and small business dismissal laws as they rally behind the Prime Minister's commitment to take a fresh look at industrial relations. This wasn't a mandate, by the way, in that election. They keep saying everyone's <laughs> got to support their mandate. You want a bit more tea by any chance? Yeah, i some more tea, thanks. There we are. It's an interesting combination, this white tea and... Uh, Hang on, I'm, not to go. Sure I can, I'm not sure I can taste the white I better tea, to be honest. Take, no, you can't. I think the other tea's taken over. There wasn't that much white tea, to be honest with you. That's why I added the tea bag, which is thrilling our audience no end, um, <laughs> hearing all that information. Oh, look, I think <laughs> it's breakfast time. We've got drinking tea. It's nice That's right, about exactly. Tea. But um, so they, they're, they're on for these new work rules, etc. And, of course, the employers keep saying, as they've said for ages, that the pendulum swung too far toward the unions in industrial relations. Well, we've all noticed that, haven't we? Uh, <laughs> you know, wow. Yeah, everyone's noticed a, a dramatic increase in their living conditions. And <laughs> we can but imagine what would happen if it hadn't. Yeah. But here's an interesting one. Well, no, before I go to that, because of the government position, I'll just um, go to this one. Um, Porter, the the new industrial relations minister, is both his Christian Porter is both the minister for industrial relations and also the attorney general. He's got both jobs, and in in both he's he's standing out this week in both. He's declared that the construction forestry, or the CMFEU, should be deregistered and that reviving integrity laws are the means to do it. He said the government needed powers to deregister a union like the CFMEU for its, for a quote, extraordinarily high standard of unlawful activity and that he was prioritising the Ensuring Integrity Bill to make it easier to do so. Um, 
and it goes on where they want to get rid of this and what a terrible job, you know, what a terrible union is. Ultimately, that requires that unions to be deregistered and we think there should be appropriate tools available for a responsible government to deregister a union that reaches the heights of unlawfulness that the CFMEU has. Mm. But Scott Morrison said he would consider deregistering the CFMEU when he took office last year. But, it, but the crossbench sort of stopped him at that time, but now they reckon they might get it through the, the Senate. He said, Porter said the ensuring integrity bill is absolutely priority number one in the IR portfolio in the early stages of this government. The ultimate sanction that you have to have against an unlawful organisation is to fairly say your unlawfulness means that you can't enjoy all of the rights and benefits of lawful registration. And the bill does just that. The bill... Um, the bill, in fact, just um, allows the government to deregister any union that it uh, it doesn't like. Essentially, um, it, it, it um, the, where are, somewhere here it talks about it. If deregister would lose the right to enter work sites, etc., its privileged status. Yeah. Um, but as here it is here. The bill would allow the minister or other parties to seek to deregister unions or a branch or division of a union with a history of law breaking, and allow the courts to disqualify union officials who are not quote fit and proper or repeatedly breach industrial laws. So it's aimed strictly at unions. That's massive. Uh, it is, and the bosses have come out all saying it's, it's absolutely essential and how wonderful it is, and etc. etc. Mm. As you can imagine. Um, so can you explain what those integrity laws are? Well, that's it. That they, that, just the ability they're, they're, to deregister the union? Uh, to, to attack a union, okay, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Michelle O'Neill, the president of the ACTU, came out and said the Ensuring Integrity Bill imposes more regulations and harsher penalties on unions than it does on any other organisation in society, including corporations. <laughs> this bill is about limiting the ability of unions to protect working people and to fight for better pay and conditions. There is no equivalent legislation anywhere in the Western world. But that's where this porter bloke's going. That is so well put, yeah. Yeah. Who's who's checking up on the corporations that are running these work sites? That's right, and and industrial disputes more more often than not occur because the boss just refuses to to, um, give any concessions at all to the union. Yeah, or to think about safety, you know. These people are working such dangerous jobs. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. Terrifying. Another sip now, but, but he's not, but to his credit, uh, Christian isn't leaving his uh, attacks on people there because he now says that the the Uluru statement last year where people want to, you know, which one of the things that asked for was recognition in the Constitution. But he he says as Attorney General that is miles away, miles <laughs> away. Um, if you are to successfully change Australia's constitution, you've got to do these things. You've got to do precise. You've got to precisely describe the words of the text that you intend to adopt. You have to precisely describe. He, he spits infinitives all the time. Uh, what that textual change does do, and you have to precisely describe what that textual change does not um, does not do. The Uluru statement is unfortunately miles away from meeting those three necessary criteria for any successful constitutional change. I would have thought um, government legal people could fix that up in about two minutes. Yeah, I know. Put the they correct the wording. Will. Put yeah. the correct wording, yeah. That's but, his job, surely. Well... <laughs> put it into law. <laughs> uh, oh, don't, don't, don't push Christian too far. Um, so, okay, what, who, what does the Attorney-General do? I'm always a bit confused. Well, he's the top legal officer, so he actually runs he runs all the law in Australia. He's, he's right. literally the top lawyer in the country in that sense. Is he... Um, so the judges are below him? Well, they are in that sense also, but, um, yeah, but he is the he's the man who... who 
you know, oversees the law, changes to the law and that sort of thing. So, right. Gosh. Yeah. Well, luckily so, we have such a forward-thinking and um, visionary man in that role. Yeah, yeah. And the Fair Work Commission has once again shown how the the pendulum has swung so far toward workers because a case at Qantas, there was a strike at Qantas over catering and um, a woman who was uh, involved and who worked for the place for 20, she had 22 years history with the caterer, um, she appealed against being sacked because there was a there was an industrial dispute there was a strike but it was it was technically not an indoor, not an authorized strike so it um so therefore it was illegal according to Qantas and there and then the end of it they they decided kindly to uh re- to let most of the other workers get off with a with a ban because it stopped the work for a half a day or a day or so uh but five people were sacked including this woman but she was actually on a day off but she came in on a day off as part of the picket line, um, and she got sacked. And, she got sacked. Um, and Jonathan Hamburger has just resigned from the senior deputy. He was the he was the one of the he was the bloke John Howard always used to attack workers. Um, he's he was the president, and he found that they had every right to sack her. And her twenty-two year history had you know didn't count. Um, but it's another you know that's that's the industrial thing they want to fix up because it's too loaded toward the workers. Yeah, totally. Let's get some um, yeah, and all the people laws operating. In that that's sphere, right. Hey? That's right. All the people they sacked were union delegates, by the way. Oh, they? right. Yes, isn't right. that? That must just be a coincidence. Mm, that's that oh, absolute surprise. Yeah. Stunning surprise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'm gonna we'll play a we'll take a we'll have a little quick break because I want to play a song um, and I'll tell you what it's about then when we play the song we'll go to Paddy Moriarty but uh, ah, from the conservatism of the of the seekers um, in a world of their own um, we're going to go to another Do you have track. some political objectives to, yeah, this, uh, well, to the seekers? Um, well yeah or one of them was a Liberal Member of Parliament yeah. Oh um, really? Ethel Guy was a state, Liberal Member of State no Parliament way. Yeah. Oh, um, but um, I guess they were very wholesome, weren't they? I'm going to do a bit of self-indulgence this morning because tomorrow night there's an event taking place, um, a history society, a Labor, not the Labor History Society, but another Labor, one attached to the Labor Party itself, actually, but I'm going to go anyway. Um, it got a grant to do research into the, the Vietnam War draft resistance and particularly keeping people underground and how they were kept underground and the history of all that during the Vietnam War with draft resistors. And uh, a number of us were interviewed for it um, a year or so ago, but it's being it's being announced tomorrow night's the the big release of the whole study um, so at you, Trades you're Hall. Feature, you're featuring tra- in the study. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I did some I did get interviewed for it. I don't oh. know what to feature, but anyway, um, it's being released tomorrow night at Trades Hall at an event. And so I thought, as a bit of self indulgence, one of the, one of the songs that so epitomised that era of our lives of my generation is this one. And I thought we'd play it before we go to Paddy Moriarty. Here it is. On the line, Paddy Moriarty. Paddy, that bring back memories? It certainly does. Scott McKenzie in San Francisco. Scott McKenzie. He's, he's one and only hit. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Christy Minstrels. I think there were others. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. Of, it's one of the best one-hit wonders of all time, that one. It is, yeah. I, I'm playing it. You haven't heard the intro, but I played it because tomorrow night at Trades Hall, there's a release of a study that's been done into keeping people underground in the Vietnam War, the draft resistors. Um, All right. And I was one of the people interviewed for it, so it's, it's being released tomorrow night. So I thought as a bit of self-indulgence, we'd play that song today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why not? Yeah.
<laughs> okay, and Paddy Moriarty, of course, Professor Moriarty out there at uh, Monash. Um, Paddy, uh, thanks for coming on today because you're, you're a last-minute call-up. We ran out of guests running around the place. Um, <laughs> Come on, Kevin, you shouldn't admit that so willingly. No, no, when I said to Paddy, you're a fill-in, he said that's my role in life, so he knows it. <laughs> um, but, uh, Paddy, a couple of things. Um, the, the recent approval of the darning and the carry-on about coal, um, I know you think we have to have coal for a while yet, but the continual approval of coal mines and the screaming by the government for the government even to invest in them, um, is going a bit far, isn't it? Yeah, look, um, I think uh, energy... Well, well, let's let's start with uh, climate change. Last year, um, carbon dioxide uh, emissions globally increased by by about 2%, right? So the first uh, IPCC report was in 1990, and since then we've made no progress at all. In fact, we've been going backwards mm. but we have had a lot of conferences and a lot of papers have been written some of them by by me I should add. <laughs> <laughs> and if in fact the climate took any any notice of uh, of the number of papers written and so on it would be almost zero now right has anyone done an, a study of the environmental impact of writing all those papers <laughs> cruel <laughs> sorry <laughs> But in so, fact, uh, there was a report last week that um, that the use that coal, in fact, the use of coal worldwide had increased again last year and has been increasing every year, despite all the claims that we are cutting back on pollution. Yeah, I think last year it increased. That's 2018. It increased 0.7 percent over the yeah. year 2017. Yes, yeah. uh, there was a bit of a hiatus, I think, for a few years. But um, the trouble is that China's now the world's largest. Uh, coal um, uh, consumer and sometimes their statistics are not all always reliable um, so it looks like it probably has just kept on kept on increasing mm. over the years. Yeah. And, and therefore I guess the answer to the question was no we shouldn't be approving new ones here all the time no <laughs> <True. Yeah. laughs> right. um, on that also in Western Australia interesting over there the Western Australian EPA Environmental Protection Authority um, some time ago recommended that the the emissions um, created by export of oil and gas and or particularly LNG from there um, should be counted against the company and that they um, and the other thing they recommended was that all proposals all new mining proposals should have zero zero emissions so they have to upset them somehow which has caused furor the industry's up in arms over there and in, in many ways the government seems to be backing off but they're making some attempt at least to uh, to control things. Well, first of all, these the offsets is uh, not a new idea. In the old days, at least for sin, it was called selling selling indulgences, right? It wasn't a good idea then, and it's not a good idea now, right? <laughs> That's a very um, just yeah. in parallel, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and the second point is uh, the, the point about uh, having the, the company, um, even if they're exported, uh, charged with the emissions. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, national emissions, and you know, uh, this, um, all these national commitments to reducing greenhouse gases are based on emissions in the country itself, right? Mm. So in other words, if, if Japan imports Australian coal and burns it in Japan, that's counted as, as, as uh, Japan's emissions, right? If we import um, manu- manufactured goods from China, and the and the factories are in China and emit there, then those goods are counted as um, sorry those emissions are counted as Chinese emissions, 
In other words, embodied uh, emissions are not counted, which is... Um, so there, there is scope for actually um, crediting uh, not so much um, fuel use, but certainly embodied in imports and exports, uh, crediting to the country where they're actually used rather than to um, the country of origin. So if that if that was to change, then really Australia's footprint would be incredibly larger than it is Well, now. we also export food and um, we also export um, partly refined aluminium and so on. So so we have some energy-intensive exports as well, and not so much manu- manu- manufacturing, but we would have... Um, uh, it's hard to say. I know that uh, in Europe, I mean, the um, carbon dioxide uh, emissions from Europe have been going down for some time, and that has paralleled uh, uh, de- de- industrialisation in uh, in Europe. Yeah. And, of course, the big, the big cause of emissions, or the major cause of emissions from our... Um, our exports of LNG are the steel mills in China, which uh, create a massive problems with emissions, don't they? Yeah, well, well, um, you know, um, everything, you know, also well, coal, of, uh, of course, a coal goes to steel. A lot of but, coal, uh, yeah, or, uh, yeah. even uh, burned burned in homes in China and and, uh, mm. and buildings for heat. Mm. On the other hand, of course, China's also apparently got the got a massive level of uh, renewable energy running parallel. It's a bit of an enigma, isn't it? And uh, in fact, I read where their their level of the level of their their uh, renewable energy exceeds the next X number of countries by hell of a lot of hell of a lot. So it's they've got massive both pollution yeah, well, well, pollution and is, renewable. The point is that the percentage of renewables, apart from hydro, um, is still pretty small, right? The, mm. the percentage of new renewables in their output is still pretty small, even though they are the world's largest um, user of um, mm. uh, photovoltaic cells, and I think they're up there with wind as well. Mm. Yeah. They just need so much energy, right? Yeah. Yeah, there was an item last week again, Paddy, which you upset you no end. It said you know, it was in the financial pages actually complaining about it, but it said that the the number of car sales in China had dropped. I thought that mightn't be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, um, China, I think, is now the world's leading man- manufacturer of cars, right? Uh, America's dropped down to three or four, I think, number three or four. Mm. Um, you know, with uh, Germany and Japan, that sort of level. Um, China's also, again, what we're saying about renewable energy, China is by far the, the world's largest manu- manu- manufacturer of uh, electric vehicles. Not only do they have 40 million electric bikes, but um, each five weeks they put, I think it's 9,000 buses on the road, electric buses on the road in China, which is uh, London's entire bus fleet wow. every five weeks, electric vehicles. That's amazing. Uh, I, I think 99% of electric buses in the world are, are made and used in, in China. And is that because they um, have a lot of pollution problems in their cities? Yes. So yeah, yeah, in China it's, it's pollution rather than global warming that drives these, these environmental changes, yeah. Mm. yeah, because pollution is something that everybody realises because they have to breathe it in. Yeah. And also you are allowed to criticise pollution in China. It's one of the few things you are allowed to uh, criticise and the government is trying, trying to do something about it, which is why you're allowed, you are allowed to criticise, I guess. And in Indian cities also, of course, are, are suffering from enormous pollution as well. Yeah, well, well yeah. Delhi, as far as uh, uh, microparticles, Delhi is the worst in the in the world. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think it's about a yeah. hundred times the you know times it gets about a hundred times the approved World Health Organization levels. A hundred times. That's I incredible. think so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
Notice that Sharon Burrow, the former president of the ACTU, who um, is now with the International Trade Union Confederation, she's the general secretary, she came here last week um, back to Australia and said that unions have to do much more about uh, climate change, and she was quite critical of those unions who, in fact, um, supported coal mining during the election and said, look, we have to accept that science, what science says, etc., etc., so there's some move there we can hope. Yeah, yeah, this jobs thing, I mean, I've been saying for some time now that if at the uh, at the Nuremberg trials, right, if the if the defendants had have said that the uh, that the gas chain, chambers created jobs, nobody could have touched them, right? Mm. Jobs is, is a sacred cow now, and it's the same with Adani. You know, that's that's what you say. You don't talk about the carbon dioxide emissions. You talk about the uh, the jobs it creates. Yes, and it's been and it's and it, the latest figure is that once the construction stage is done, there'll only be eight hundred jobs anyway ongoing from there. Yeah, well, it'll be construction. Yeah, be the main thing. Yeah, yeah. one off. So, uh, wow, that's wonderful, isn't it? Getting back to cars and electric cars, where are we here with transport? Paddy, you look at that a fair bit. Where, what's happening on the roads in Melbourne at this stage? There aren't a lot of electric cars here. Uh, the leading country in the world as a percentage of new sales is Norway, um, and China is the lead in absolute numbers. But uh, Norway is the lead in, uh, I think, about a third of new car sales in Norway are electric. Uh, mainly, mainly, I guess, because uh, Norway has 100% hydro, so, uh, you know, it, it is a, uh, for them at least, it is a uh, green alternative to to uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. In, a, in Australia, of course, um, uh, where our electricity is largely produced from brown coal, it would make things worse, mm. or at least it wouldn't improve it. Uh, electric vehicles are somewhat more efficient than internal combustion engine vehicles because they can have uh, regenerative braking. In other words, you can reverse polarity on the motor and turn it in the, into a generator as you brake and store the energy in the battery right, to be used later, later on. So for, for that reason, if if the traffic is uh, stop-start, then they are more efficient on highways. There won't be, um, you know, on free-flowing highways, you won't notice much difference mm. between electric vehicles and mm. uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. I went for my first ride in an electric vehicle a few weeks ago and it was um, charged with a solar panel, a series of solar panels that this guy had on his roof. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, there, there is a, there's an annual race, I think, uh, Darwin to Adelaide um, solar vehicle race, yeah. Well, there was. I don't know if it's still going. Oh, yeah, I don't know if it's still no, Maybe it is, but, it, yeah, they used to... They're quite outlandish-looking cars, they, they were, but anyway, yeah. 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 But uh, on that, I mean, Norway must obviously have um, charge points all over the place, um, as much as we have petrol tank, petrol bowsers here, I would think, for them to have that many electric cars. Well, I have... In fact, um, there are two types of... Uh, well, there's three types of charging points. One is, of course, charging at home, and as you know, there are... There are probably a billion um, charge points in that sense, but um, the slow charge for the, for those that are public, there are slow charge and fast charge, and I think in the world now the slow charge external to buildings is about three hundred thousand, and fast charge it's certainly in the tens of thousands. So, yeah, um, so electric vehicles uh, because the grid is universal, electric vehicles uh, charging won't be a problem. It's the uh, range; it's still a bit of a problem. Mm. And not so much for cars, but it means that electric vehicles are not really suitable for uh, freight vehicles. That is, um, uh, uh, heavy trucks, trains, and, and of course, ships. 
Yeah. So by the range, you mean like it, it, it makes sense for somebody to drive a solar vehicle around the city, but they wouldn't necessarily... Uh, solar, no, solar's not on really. Sorry, I mean, I'm putting, yeah, electric. electric vehicle, yeah. <laughs> oh, the, the range has improved. So the, mm. the average vehicle uh, only goes about 40 kilometres a day, and... Um, and that's no problem for an electric vehicle, right? For long trips, it would be a problem, but for the average trip, it, it wouldn't be. But some of them now are reading up, you know, able to do sort of five hundred kilometres or so on a, on a, on one charge. No, no, not quite. I don't think. Isn't they, it? I thought I, thought I read that hundred. somewhere where they were doing that sort of. It was certainly in the hundreds, anyway. Yeah, it's uh, it's a few hundred. Yeah, so yeah. Um, so they're, they're really, um, and that's why. Uh, I mean the. International Energy Agency reckons that there'll be several hundred million in a, in a couple of decades or so, right? Mm. And so does Bloomberg Energy Research. So um, at present, um, the alternatives to uh, oil-based fuels are um, natural gas and, and LPG, which has about 3% of the market, and um, Electric vehicles, which again has about this, uh, which includes electric trains and trams, which has about the same percentage, right? Yeah. And biomass as well, but they're all pretty small. I mean, um, uh, oil-based fuels are still over ninety percent of, um, of of transport fuel. Yeah. If we if we went to renewables and didn't use brown coal to charge electric cars, then they would be much more um, environmentally f- f- reasonable, wouldn't they? Yeah. The trouble is you've got to take a system view. For instance, if Norway moves, Norway exports uh, hydroelectricity to to the European grid, right? Mm. Um, if it moves to electric... Uh, Norway, of course, has oil, exports oil as well. Yes. North sea. Yeah. If Norway moves to, say, um, from internal combustion engines entirely to electric vehicles, what could happen is that it, it then exports less, less hydro and... Uh, Europe has to uh, burn more brown coal to to uh, generate its its electricity. In other words, you've got to take a system point of view. You can't just say, "Look, I come out of the smelling of roses." Pity about the rest of you, right? Mm. Doesn't work that way. This is a global problem: carbon dioxide, uh, an atom emitted, uh, molecule emitted anywhere, uh, still counts. Doesn't matter where it is. Mm. Yeah. Uh, in other words, the, I have. Uh, yeah. I read an interesting piece of transport news. This isn't really um, electric or sustainability related at all, but I'm going to throw it in there, that uh, Uber was starting up an air service in Melbourne. Mm. Have you guys read that in the, in the papers in no, the last few weeks? Yeah, they're talking about having um, little, those little flying things and flying people around in, um, in little aircraft, Paddy, which should be great if you have an accident. <laughs> yeah, well, Uber apparently... Are, are, are in a fair bit of trouble financially, right? Ooh. In other words, the only way that they can, um, the, the only sort of financial advantage they have is by underpaying drivers, right? Mm. Um, I mean, there's not a, there's no real big leap between that and 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 uh, conventional taxis, right? You still get a driver to drive you around, mm-hmm. so um, they haven't made money yet, and. Uh, because they're IT based, of course you can always get a bit of venture capital. But they, um, and they and they don't look as though they ever will. As you know, in China they uh, they dropped out of that market; they couldn't compete there. Yeah, really, that's so interesting. Yeah, uh, Uber are trying to get uh, driverless vehicles, which would save them paying things. But uh, my own view is that driverless vehicles, fully automated vehicles, won't won't be be happening. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll certainly get more and more assist, but in the end. 
the driver will, will be legally responsible for the vehicle and will still have the conventional controls as well as the uh, as well as the electronic ones. Mm. Mm. You'd feel a bit safer, wouldn't you? <laughs> but is the concept of these little flying taxis a, a goer? When you say flying taxis, are these for for people or, or for deliveries? No, they're mm. for people. You pick people up, you, you have rooftop sort of landing spots and you pick them up on one rooftop and take them to somewhere else where they want to go. I read specifically <laughs> about the route from the airport to the city. So they were offering people a lift from the airport to the CBD of Melbourne in a little helicopter for mm-hmm. like $50, I believe. Yeah, well, um, if, 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 uh, a few observations here. Uh, commercial flying is very safe. I mean, the reason why there's is, of course, that people do a lot of of, of passenger kilometres. In other words, you you rake up more more passenger kilometres in a plane than you do by riding a bike for an hour, right? Um, but private vehicles have a very high accident rate, mm. partly because um, the uh, driver health, the pilot health doesn't have to be as well as good as or the training, and you have to think about the people on the uh, on the ground, right? Especially in cities. Um, so, I don't think this is a very good idea at all. Mm. I mean, imagine when I mean, Melbourne's got what, um, let's say, uh, two and a half million vehicles, right? Let's say we replace them by two and a half million air <laughs> vehicles, right? Um, just imagine, I mean, you couldn't have uh, any sort of uh, control tower mm. I mean, <laughs> trying to handle it too. Yeah. be a bit, bit rough in traffic, James. Yeah, <laughs> that's still a way off. <laughs> <laughs> we seem to have stopped. <laughs> Not a good thing. <laughs> no, no, we also seem to be dropping. Um, Paddy, I want to move on to glyphosate, um, yep. which is the, the Roundup product. And it's been in America, there's been lots of cases recently where people have been compensated for... Um, getting cancers, etc., from it. Um, the the jury they claim, according to the company, is still out. Or they don't say it's out. They say there's no, it, it's harmless. In fact, and these cases are absolutely wrong. Um, what's your view on this? Um, I know there is some scientists have different views on just how how dangerous it is. Well, it, they might be right that the, um, for instance, with the uh, with the uh, breast implants, there's no evidence that um, that they caused cancer. But in the end, the companies decided probably better to pay out and save the legal costs. Right? Um, with there, there is uh, conflicting scientific evidence, but uh, it seems like um, most scientists think the cancer risk is not all that great. The problem is that, of course, that uh, it's a herbicide. And um, plants are, are developing resistance to to uh, glyphosate. Why do you pronounce it? Glyphosate. Glyphosate. Yeah. Yes. So they're developing resistance. I've got it in front of me, spelled out. I can I can say it. Right. Yeah. Roundup. Let's call it Roundup. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so this is the real problem, and it's a problem that's not easily solved. In other words, um, there's now there are now seven and a half billion of us, and we eat a lot of food, and um, agri- agriculture is. Uh, the uh, land is very intensively worked to get um, higher output per hectare, and um, that's got its drawbacks. But it's also one of its uh, benefits is, of course, we don't have to cut down as much more forest or use um, other land for it. So, um, what what is happening now, and uh, is that farmers are having to use a whole mix of uh, herbicides, and they're also using the old methods, that is, uh, hand weeding. Believe it or not which I used to do as a kid, mm-hmm. and also um, ploughing and turning the uh, weeds over and so on to kill them. Mm. So, and look, the problem of weed, of, you know, of resistance, um, 
and weeds and so on is not going to go away. It's it's going to get worse and it's a pretty big problem. But the point is the Roundup is not the golden solution. It's one of them maybe, but it's not going to solve everything. We've still got to look at the other methods, including biological control, I guess. Yeah, and of course organic um, organic growing as well, which is you know becoming more and more popular. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, with organic farming... Um, I don't know about the benefits from the food itself. I mean, I um, I think it's if in fact it does help release or reduce runoff of pollutants and that sort of thing. I think it's a very good idea. But as far as the health benefits from organic versus non-organic food, I don't think they're very great. Mm. And is it is it one of the big questions, you know, connecting to the glyphosate thing that? How, how, would we actually be able to produce enough food to feed the whole planet if we were to stop using these? Things like Roundup. Well, I think we, we need to use herbicides. Right? Um, what type doesn't matter. And as I say, it's now getting to the stage where where, uh, where, where Roundup on its own is not enough for for, um, for the growing number of weed resistant. Um, uh, or, or, sorry, sorry, of herbicide resistant uh, weeds. So. Um, Look, it might be part of the solution, but as I say, it's not a uh, it's not a not a panacea. Mm. Mm. Recently, Europe wanted or that Europe was discussing banning it altogether, and um, the 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 parties involved on the on the glyphosate the on the Roundup side um, spent trillions of dollars. In fact, Monsanto threw two hundred thousand euros into the campaign with a PR company to get round and convince farmers that it was all safe and okay and to get the farmers to uh, to fight the, the campaign. So they, they do take it pretty seriously. In fact, New Farm, an Australian company here, threw some money into it as well because it uses it in some of its products as well. Yeah. Uh, as I say, what's likely to... Um, you know, the, the fact that the emergence of these uh, uh, pesticide-resistant or Roundup-resistant weeds is going to uh, put a bit of a damper on that. I mean, as I say, as I said before, it'll have its place, but it's not, it's not a cure-all. Yeah, right. We we need <laughs> cure-alls because, in fact, the the Herald Sun's found a cure-all, by the way. You'll be pleased to know, <laughs> Patty. It's headline um, Monday. In the slow lane all over the front page, the traffic surge crippling our roads, and it points out all these roads that are choked, and the solution, of course, Paddy, is the usual one, build some more roads. Well, in the inner area, uh, as some... Uh, I forget some famous comedian said... We've only got about a minute left, by the way. I'll just, but anyway, yeah, as some famous comedian, uh, comedian said uh, some time ago, that they, uh, buy land, they aren't making any more. Mm-hmm. And in the inner, <laughs> inner, inner and middle areas of Melbourne, it's fully built up, right? And, um, you know, if they, if they want to put a freeway through to act, good luck to them. <laughs> 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 yeah, no the freeways all seem to happen in the West, don't they? Well, but even so, I mean, um, that's not getting around uh, built-up Melbourne very much, right? And um, there's not much they, they can do except go underground. And, of course, um, and that's extremely expensive. So, uh, uh, in fact, I think one of the reasons for uh, talking about population control in, in Australia has been that the roads are full. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Forget some some cyclical logic there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're seeing it with uh, animals. To, you know, their, their land being taken over, so they stay on their land, but it becomes urban. So people want to now cull kangaroos because they're hanging around where they mm. were when we took the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Poor kangaroos. 
Yeah, that's right. Okay. You, you mean football teams or what, Paddy? Uh, uh, look, thanks, Paddy. We are out of time, but thanks for your thanks for coming on this morning and doing a wonderful job filling in for us. Okay. Bye. Thanks, right thanks a lot, Paddy Moriarty there, who's um, professor out at Monash and uh, sits there and does wonderful things. <laughs> Great description. <laughs> that's right. um, so before we end the show, I just wanted to update everyone on the Radiothon uh, yeah, what's shenanigans. So... Uh, thanks for everyone who's donated so far. We've got, as a station, 170,000 of our 250,000 target. Mm. So it's we're slowly getting there, but there's so still a way to go. if got a spare, what, 80 grand? We're, yeah, we're if okay. we've got a spare 80 grand, feel free to call up. The number is 94198377. Just running loose. <laughs> or go to the website, 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Uh, and for our show specifically, we've got 2,000... And eighty-five dollars out of our target of two thousand three hundred and fifty. So, so yeah, thanks everyone, and we're almost there. We're so getting if you have any, that's right. Have any have any coins jingling around your pockets? Get on the website or call us <laughs> up, right. and it's all tax deductible. So we'll very much appreciate it. Your your salesperson course has done you really well, Eugenia. It's working a treat. Working a natural, Kevin. We better go get out of here before Joe comes in and abuses us. Mm-hmm. Um, and next week's transport. Next week's transport. And Meg's back next week, isn't she? She said she'll be back at the start of July. Yes, finally. Gosh, it feels like an age. See you all next week, everyone.